I'm going to ask you to stand again as we read the passage for this morning. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 30. Romans 8, starting in verse 26. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Loving Father, we thank you in advance for what you have to say to us in this great passage. We ask that you would help us to see more clearly what you're at work to do even now to fit us for your kingdom and for your presence. We ask that you would teach us to place our confidence in that which you are at work to do and to be thankful and obedient. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Al, thanks for that hymn. Every every old DTS guy loves that hymn, right? Well, it's the, the, yeah, the tune is different at, at, at DTS Chapel, but the, the words are what, what uh, really counts. That's a majestic, wonderful hymn. Uh, several years ago, I uh, shared with you guys a quote uh, from a guy named Dennis Prager. Many of you know him from his radio talk show. Uh, he's not a Christian. He's a devout Jew. But he has an extensive knowledge of the Old Testament, and as a result, I think he comes across quite a lot of practical wisdom. The quote that I want to share with you is this. Those who do the greatest harm to any religion are not the opponents of the religion, but rather are the joyless adherents to that religion. I'm going to read that again. Those who do the greatest harm to any religion are not the opponents of the religion, but rather are the joyless adherents to that religion. Have you ever considered that if people looked very hard at you, at your words and your actions, that they might conclude that the God you worship isn't all that faithful? It's impossible to be joyful if you're not convinced that God's faithfulness is real. That His faithfulness to His own agenda actually ends up benefiting you. Now, last week we saw in Romans 8, verses 18 to 25, that Paul laid out for us the marvelous hope that we have, the eager expectation, the anxious longing that's directed at something that's yet future, which is our glorious redemption. Indeed, it is 
the inheritance that we share with Christ because it belongs to Christ. That hope is entirely fixed not on things that are seen, but on things that are not yet seen. We're called to an unwavering focus on Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, the shepherd and guardian of our souls. And Paul says that as we persevere with that focus, we experience great hope. Indeed, we, we experience the joy of our salvation on an ongoing basis this side of heaven. And that makes us powerfully useful for God's eternal purposes. Now, in the remaining verses of this chapter, chapter 8, Paul zeroes in on what I would call practical confidence. And he uses very encouraging terms in this passage. He speaks of the great and abiding confidence that we enjoy as those for whom there is now no condemnation. The whole idea of what he's talking about in the remainder of this chapter goes back to what he started with at the beginning of this chapter. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have great confidence in the work that God is doing in us even now, even in the midst of the suffering that we share with Christ, this side of glory. The promises to which Paul points us here should get our fervent attention because they give us every reason to be encouraged and optimistic even in the midst of the very worst trials of this life. Now, what you see up on the board is, is where we're going. And there's, uh, I'm going to do this in two pieces. First, verses 26 to 30 today, and then verses 31 to 39 next week, Lord willing. This time we're looking at the confidence that God has given us in two areas. First, in the Holy Spirit's intercession for us in verses 26 to 28. And then secondly, confidence regarding God's work in us. And that's his redemptive work. Next week, we're going to see in verses 31 to 34 the continuation of this idea of confidence in what God's doing. Confidence that God is for us, and because he's for us, no one can be against us. And then in verses 35 to 39, confidence that nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. First, this morning, verses 26 to 28. Verse 26 begins, And in the same way, or likewise, the Spirit also helps our weakness. Now, Paul ties this back, when he says in the same way, to what has just come before. And I believe the tie-in centers around the idea of groaning. He said back in chapter 8, verses 22 to 23, we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And then he said not only this, not only does creation groan, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So, Creation groans and we groan, and they're both looking toward the same event. The redemption of those who are the children of God. But Paul uh, knows that our awareness of the suffering that we endure this side of heaven 
will have a good effect. He says that, and it'll have a perfect outcome. But he also knows that that knowledge, that awareness of the great, of the, of the marvelous outcome doesn't make the suffering unpleasant. For us who belong to Christ, that unpleasantness actually helps, as we saw last week, to keep our eyes focused on the prize, to keep our eyes looking upward, heavenward, rather than at the things that we see here. Indeed, for us who belong to Christ, it's actually a blessing that God made the curse as painful as he did. But painful as it is, uh, it's hard, it is hard to wait for something so glorious. So we groan, <laughs> and creation groans. But in verse 26, Paul says there's a third party to the groaning. A third person. And that third person is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God. I've heard some preach this uh, almost as if uh, there are no holds barred in our prayers. Because he says, he says this, the Holy Spirit helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he says, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And some have represented that as if whatever we set before God in prayer, the Holy Spirit's going to tweak it and make it right and then take it up to God. And so there's really, it's a carte blanche. We can pray whatever we, whatever we want. It's as if they're saying that the Holy Spirit will take whatever self-absorbed garbage we want to spew forth in prayer and then he'll reprocess it somehow and bring it before God as something worthy of his attention. I think that seriously misses Paul's point and seriously violates the context. Not only here, but in many other passages that talk about prayer. Think about James chapter 4 for a moment. In that, in that passage, James warns against taking worldly and selfish requests to God. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. And then he says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And earlier in James, in chapter 1, he says that if we pray without faith, we shouldn't expect to receive anything, anything from the Lord. Now, I don't believe Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit intercedes to fix prayers that are offered in unbelief or to fix prayers that are offered for selfish motives that do not honor God. So to what kind of prayers does this intercession of the Spirit apply? Well, uh, previously we've seen already in Romans 8 that the whole concept of groaning, the groaning of creation and our groaning, revolves around the fulfillment of God's agenda when he redeems those whom he has made to be his own people. Creation's groaning, our groaning, and I'm convinced the Holy Spirit's groaning all have that same focus on the perfect completion of God's marvelous work of redemption for those who are the heirs of God. That is the redemption that will bring about the undoing of the curse. 
Paul's talking about the Spirit's intercession as he inhabits the prayers of his people. Prayers that imperfectly seek that which is perfect. That is the fulfillment of God's program, not the fulfillment of our program. He says, again, the Spirit helps our weakness, but we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, the the Spirit's groaning on our behalf is all about our prayers. It's in the midst of our prayers. This is a very amazing concept. Uh, It's an amazing promise. The weakness that he's talking about is our weakness related to prayer. He says, we do not know how to pray as we should. And that's a pretty critical weakness, isn't it? (laughs) If God had done nothing about that weakness, our prayer lives would be fairly pointless. Because even when our desires are honoring to God, we don't even know how we should pray. Yet prayer is one of the most important, one of the very most important activities to which we are commanded throughout Scripture. We're commanded to pray in all things. We're commanded to pray without ceasing. We're commanded to pray not as a last resort, as some might have it, but as the first and primary action in all the affairs of life. Yet Paul says, we have a problem. We don't even know how we should pray. But that bit of bad news is surrounded by good news because he says the Holy Spirit not only knows our catastrophic weakness in prayer, he, the one who, he's the one who perfectly addresses that weakness and he's the one who perfectly knows our inadequacy in the area of prayer. he, he knows not only how to make our prayers adequate, he knows how to make them spot on. And there's a, at least uh, one major difference between our groanings and the Holy Spirit's groanings. Our groanings arise from the imperfection of our understanding about either God or ourselves. But the Holy Spirit's groanings on our behalf are perfect. They're perfect because, according to the passage... The Spirit searches, uh, there we go, the Spirit Himself searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the Spirit is. And it says He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I believe Paul's point here is that the Holy Spirit prays what we can't because He knows what we don't. He knows not only the entirety of of our lack of understanding and of our imperfection. But he knows what's in our hearts. He knows what we are seeking, what we desire. And then way beyond that, way more important than that, he knows the mind of God. He knows the agenda of God. He knows exactly what God is seeking to do in our lives and through our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 speaks of the transcendent wisdom of God that is revealed to men only by the Holy Spirit. And then Paul says in that passage in 1 Corinthians 2.10, the Spirit is the one who searches all things, even the depths of God. 
So the Spirit's praying for us with flawless knowledge of both parties in the process of prayer. That's, uh, that's quite an amazing thing. He takes our feeble, sometimes poorly informed prayers, and he transforms them into a powerful and dynamic interaction between us and God the Father. And you know why that works so well? Because the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, will never be misunderstood by God the Father. The Holy Spirit not only prays for us with perfect knowledge, He prays for us with a perfect purpose. He prays for us according to the will of God. Paul says, He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Literally, the Greek is according to God. According to God's character. According to God's priorities. According to God's way of doing things. That's a perfect intercession. There's no doubt, as I said, that we often pray with misguided priorities. Even with the best of intentions, we ask for things that God knows we should not have. But the Holy Spirit takes the reins in our prayers. He fills out what is lacking, and He never fails to ask God for the right things. Things that are in keeping with God's purposes. And the cool part is he prays for the things that are truly good. Uh, In Matthew 7, Jesus said, If we fathers being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our heavenly Father give what is good to those who ask him? And it's no coincidence that in the parallel passage to that statement in Luke, the good gift is the Holy Spirit says in Luke 11:13 if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more shall your heavenly father give the holy spirit to those who ask him <laughs> all the rest of the good that god does for us flows from that down payment of our inheritance and that down payment is a person the holy spirit of god who dwells within us the spirit is our perfect prayer filter it's as though We have this uh, amazing promise that liberates us in a way that, that we almost don't expect. Don't you tend to come to prayer sometimes feeling something of a burden to really get it right? I, I think sometimes we truly agonize over our words in prayer. And that's, it's not a bad thing for us to have so much respect for the one to whom we're speaking that we consider our words to be important. But the guarantee that we have from God is that the Holy Spirit renders our imperfect prayers in a perfect manner. And he really does remove from us this burden to agonize over the exact wording that we offer to God. And and I believe in doing so, he makes the whole process of prayer far more attractive. (laughs) God intends for us to be in the habit of prayer. He intends for us to have an ongoing conversation with him concerning everything. Every aspect of our lives, every part of our experience, every promise that he has made to us, every person we love, every conflict that we have. 
We should labor in prayer. We should be disciplined in prayer. But we should never, never think that the quality of our prayers determines the outcome of our prayers. If we do, if we think that's the way it works, our prayers become joyless and they tend to become self-focused because we're worried more about what we're saying than what God's hearing. Unger's Bible Dictionary, uh, many years ago, actually I was in seminary, so that was many years ago. I was looking at the issue of prayer and I came across this definition that Merrill Unger laid out in, in, the, in the Bible Dictionary and, and I've never forgotten it. it. It really, really burned into my heart. He says, very simply, Prayer is the expression of man's dependence upon God for all things. Prayer is the expression of man's dependence upon God for all things. See, we're not telling God what we need. We're not informing God. Jesus made it clear in Matthew 6 that God already knows what we need before we ask him. Our prayers are offered up not because God needs to hear them, but because we need to speak them. Our prayers are the expression of our utter dependence upon him for all things. That applies both to prayer and to, to, to praise and to petition. All prayer is fundamentally an acknowledgement of God as the one and only source. He's the one we fear. He's the one from whom alone proceeds real harm and real good. The only real versions of either. So he's the one to whom we must carry our prayers and our praise. I've known Christians whose prayers uh, seemed at times to border on sin, if not to actually be sin, because the words seem more like a desperate manipulation of God than a humble dependence upon God. Again, those prayers are offered sometimes as if they're intended to convince God to do what the person offering the prayer is already convinced should be done as if they're offered in order to somehow get God to be with our program that's not humble dependence it's not honoring to God and it's not likely to result in anything resembling what the person is asking for if there's anything for which Paul's statement argues in this passage it is a humbly dependent attitude in prayer. An attitude born of the knowledge that even the words we bring before God are woefully inadequate because we do not even know how we should pray. An attitude that's filled with thanks and gratitude for His intercession on our behalf. The intercession that that transforms our prayers into perfect prayers. What an amazing gift that is. How can we resist availing ourselves of that gift? And by the way, there's nothing that indicates anywhere in Scripture that the Spirit's going to intercede to pray for us if we're not praying. It's all about the Spirit inhabiting our prayers and our praise to God. So we have to pray. We have to pray. But as we pray, we pray with this attitude that that acknowledges our inadequacy and the perfect adequacy of the Spirit. Now, I've heard it said that uh, it's not great, great faith that matters, but it's faith in a great God. I think that's a 
pretty good statement. And I think the same kind of approach applies to our prayers. It's not great prayers that matter. It's prayers offered up to a great God. God is the one who ensures the effectiveness of our prayers, not us. And again, that effectiveness is guaranteed precisely because of the work of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, who knows us perfectly and knows God perfectly. There is no chance of miscommunication between God the Spirit and God the Father. Now, the Holy Spirit's intercession brings about that which God knows to be good. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 is one of the most often quoted verses from the epistle to the Romans, Paul's epistle to the Romans. But I think it's quite possibly more often misused than used correctly. Paul just pointed out that we don't know how to pray rightly. Now he tells us something we do know, something we can hang our hat on. He says, here's what we know. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called according to, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The key issue that we must get right in that verse is what is the good to which Paul is referring? In their efforts to apply this verse to their lives, I think believers have gone all over the place with the meaning of the word good. They've gone everywhere except the context itself. At least many believers have. Paul tells us here what the good is. In the previous verse, he said the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in prayer according to God according to His will, His way, His purposes, His agenda, not ours. That's the first big clue about what the good is. And then in verse 29, he clarifies what God's version of good is when he says, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. The eternal good that comes from the hand of God usward is that he works to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. That defines for us what is good. My brother uh, John this morning said, when we stand in the presence of God, we will be like Christ. That is the goal of God's activity in our lives right now, to bring about that conformity with Christ. That's what's good. And by the way, as Paul's already pointed out, you don't get that good. You don't obtain that, that true good without suffering, without participation in the sufferings of the one who is our life, Jesus Christ. The servant is not greater than the master. I've seen entire sermons preached that turn the amazing promise of verse 28 into a guarantee that God is at work in all things to do what makes us happy and to do what will make our lives pleasant. There's a vast difference between God doing things that result in our good and God doing things on our terms. A vast difference. God does all things for the sake of His holy name. Our well-being is not the purpose of God's activity. Our well-being is the outcome of God's activity 
to glorify himself. Throughout Scripture, it's clear that God does good toward his covenant children. No question about it. And there are passages that says he does that good for our sakes. But the fundamental and primary purpose of all that God does is for the sake of his holy name. It's always in keeping with his character and his purposes. It's not about us. If you want to make God laugh, I've heard it said, tell him your plans. God's not interested in your plans. He's waiting for you to be interested. He's at work in you to make you interested in his plans. In fact, to make you entirely submitted to his plans. A great example in which the purpose of the good God does toward his people is explicitly laid out is Ezekiel chapter 36. This is one of the two great passages in the Old Testament about the new covenant. It's one I go to a lot, and the Spirit brings it to mind a lot in my in my head. In this passage uh, leading up to what's up here on the screen, God rebukes Israel for profaning his holy name. He makes it clear that he has every reason to be done with Israel, to utterly destroy them. Because in the nations to which he has exiled them because of their disobedience, they have simply disobeyed more. And they profaned his name. They actually had an opportunity in the exiles to exalt the name of God among people who had hardly heard of God, but instead they profaned his name. And yet God promises in this passage not to destroy them, but to do good toward them, a good that is greater than anything they could have imagined. He promises to gather them from from all the lands to which he has scattered them, to bring them back into the land of promise. He says that he will cleanse them from all their filthiness and from their idols. He will remove their heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. He will put His Holy Spirit within them. He will cause them to walk in His statutes. And He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's the exact opposite of what they deserved. So yeah, He does good toward His covenant people. But in verses 22 and 23, He declares for whose sake He is about to do this great good. And He says... Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. He says, then the nations will know that I am Yahweh when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Not by destroying you, but by doing good to you that you did not deserve. That is an amazing thing. Certainly straightens out uh, our understanding of God's purpose in doing us good. His work in the lives of those whom he has made his people is intended to cause us to do that which glorifies him. His concern is for our holiness, not for our happiness. The notion that God has promised to make our lives happy and pleasant this side of glory, indeed the very notion that a pleasant and carefree existence is good in the first place, 
is a pernicious and grievous lie that is crippling God's church in this age. It's the reason the leadership in so many churches are falling all over themselves trying to figure out how to make church more entertaining instead of figuring out how to move the children of God toward greater holiness. It's the reason that missions and churches all over the world are seeing a precipitous decline in financial support, especially, especially among those under age 35. It's the reason the church has so little influence in its culture. The bright lampstand, which is the witness of the church of God in this fallen world, is being hidden under the bushel of comfort and convenience. It's being gradually snuffed out by the obsession with self and with comfort that's come to characterize not just the culture, but the church itself. We've redefined the word good to mean pleasure and control over our well-being. And you know what? In the process, true good is exactly what we've forfeited. Until we acknowledge once again that we don't even know what good means until God tells us, until we acknowledge that, that we don't even know God or ourselves sufficiently, to ask for the right things when we pray, until we acknowledge that we will realize true good only when we humbly submit ourselves to the expressed will of the one from whom every good thing and every perfect gift proceeds. Until then, we'll be chasing after a mirage, after a good of our own contrivance that is in reality not good at all. In verses 29 and 30, Paul moves from talking about our confidence in the Spirit's perfect intercession on our behalf to talking about our confidence in the work that God is doing to make us fit for His presence. He said, God causes all things to work together for those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose, And now he picks up on that idea, those who were called according to his purpose, in verses 29 and 30. And he explains how that calling fits in to God's plan of redemption from A to Z. He says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What he lays out for us here is a very linear progression. It begins with God's foreknowledge of those whom he will make his children. And it ends with God's glorification of those whom he has made his children. Now, at the very heart of what Paul is saying here is that that group doesn't change from start to finish. Those whom God foreknew are the ones who end up being glorified. The redemptive work that God began in eternity past continues uninterrupted and uninterruptible until he finishes it. Now again, Paul already made it clear earlier that glorification is the final step in God's redemptive work. 
uh, it's the culmination or completion of God's work of making us fit for his kingdom and his presence. That's the last step. The first step is foreknowledge. Uh, The first two, foreknowledge and predestination, occurred in eternity past. The other three, calling, justification, and glorification of every believer, take place in the experience of each person whom God has chosen to make his own. And they take place in that order. Calling, justification, and glorification. Paul mentioned the calling already in verse 28. But in verses 29 to 30, he puts calling right in the middle of this sequence, right? Again, the first step is foreknowledge. Now, God's foreknowledge has been a topic of much debate for hundreds of years. (laughs) So I'm certainly not going to exhaust that debate and solve it for you here this morning. But I'll say there are two essential views on God's foreknowledge. The first is that God sees in advance from eternity past, and he knows how each person will respond to the gospel. If a person will one day respond in faith, then God thus predestines that person to be saved. Now that view puts the free will and choice of man kind of at the front of the process as the determinative factor in a man's salvation or condemnation. The second view is that God declares in advance. So it's either that God sees in advance and then makes a determination, or that God declares in advance and has determined already what the outcome will be. The second view makes foreknowledge essentially the same as preordination, predetermination. That is, that God determined and decreed in advance to bring those whom he has chosen to faith and then to work through this process of justification leading to glorification. By the way, sanctification is in the middle. We'll talk about that in a minute. Does the Bible provide any help uh, to tell us which of those two views is most fitting with Scripture itself? I believe it does. Consider how Peter explained God's foreknowledge, the same word, of Christ's crucifixion when he was talking to the Jewish leaders who had demanded Christ's death. He said, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now, it would be tough to argue from that passage that God looked forward through the annals of time and he saw the death of Christ at the cross and he said, yeah, okay, that'll work. I guess I'll do it that way. No, God's foreknowledge of the crucifixion of Christ was the preordination that that event would occur. In fact, Jesus said, For this hour I came. My brother Brad Burton said to me once, uh, another thing I'll never forget, he said, how can the God who is both sovereign over all that happens and unlimited in power to control all that happens know in advance that something will happen and not choose for it to happen? 
And that understanding of God's sovereignty and omnipotence is, I believe, at the heart of what all of Scripture says about God's foreknowledge. God is the one, the only one, who knows the end from the beginning. Check out, if you want to write down the verses, Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 8. Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. And Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. In both those passages, God mocks the idols created by the pagan nations, and he says, they haven't got a clue about the difference between the end and the beginning. And he says, I declare the end from the beginning. In 1 Peter 1, Peter again, he's the one who was speaking back there in Acts, he speaks about God's foreknowledge of that which Christ would accomplish at the cross. He says, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He's talking about the cross. And then he says, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Those who through him are believers. I believe Peter refers here to God's predetermination that Christ would appear in the flesh in these last times in order to accomplish the redemption that God had declared from eternity past. I believe he also is talking here about a second facet of God's foreknowledge, and that is God's intimate personal knowledge of his own. Not only was Christ's work of redemption at the cross known and determined by God from eternity past, but God the Father knew God the Son in eternity past, and he knew him perfectly. He knew him intimately. He knew him personally. I believe the same is true of us as the redeemed of God. God, who is not subject to time, actually knew us intimately and personally before we ever existed. One of the brothers this morning read from Psalm 139. And in that passage, it says... Thou didst form my inward parts. Thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works, and my soul knows it very well. And then he says, My frame was not hidden from thee when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me when there was as yet not one of them. You think God didn't know us before we existed? God foreknew us, and God predestined us to be conformed to Christ. And all the ones he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, uh, once again, the word predestined has been the topic of a lot of heated debate, but actually Paul's use of the word predestined here is not controversial at all. What he's saying here is that, you know, the, the 
controversy is on the word foreknowledge, but he's, he's saying those who were, whom God foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of, of his son. He's saying all those who are the children of God have it as their destiny to become like Christ. Is there anybody here who disagrees with that? I hope not. In order that Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. The very heart of the confidence that we have regarding God's work in us is that God is working all things together for good to make us like Christ. That's the good toward which God is orchestrating all that He does in us and all that He does around us. So that Christ might have many brethren. Now the brethren of Christ are us who share in His glorious inheritance. That's what Paul was talking about up there in verses 16 and 17. We are those who are the heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. All that we inherit, we inherit because it belongs to Christ first. He's making many brethren (laughs) by his redemptive work. God foreknew us, he predestined us, and he called us. Now in his introduction to the epistle of Romans back in chapter 1, Paul said he was addressing believers in Rome whom he said are the called of Jesus Christ. He said they are those who are beloved of God in Rome called as saints. So what is the calling of God? Well, I believe in simplest terms, it's how we come to know that we are chosen by God. I believe his calling is the immediate cause of our faith. The faith through which we are justified in his sight. I know there are those here who disagree with me about that and would put faith before justification. They would put faith before, excuse me, before uh, choosing in some sense. I, I respect those who disagree with me about that issue, but I do disagree. <laughs> I have to say that I'm, I find it very compelling uh, the way this is laid out, even right here in this passage. Calling precedes justification. Justification is, the re- is based on faith. Uh, so God calls us and brings us to faith. I think that uh, there are a lot of passages we could look at on that score, but I don't want to get heavily into the, into the uh, debate. I want to focus on the point. The point is that God calls us and he does all these things in our lives to conform us to Christ, and he's going to finish that work. Now, by the way, the idea that God's calling brings about our justification I believe is born out in the very next step of this redemptive sequence. He says, whom he called, these he also justified. So calling is clearly first. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on justification because we already did. (laughs) In the first several chapters of this epistle, justification was a primary theme, the primary theme in many of those chapters. God already, uh, Paul already made a compelling case in the first five chapters, that the way we come to be justified, which means declared righteous in the eyes of God, is purely as a gift by His grace through Jesus Christ. It's purely because Jesus paid the eternal debt that we could never pay, the debt we owed to God because we're all sinners. And now, 
Because God made Him who knew no sin, sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We are now clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when God looks at us, He sees the righteousness of Christ. The very next thing that Paul tells us is that every one of us who have been justified are also glorified. That's very good news indeed. From the first step in God's work of redemption to the very last step, nobody gets dropped. That's what we call eternal security. Jesus said, this is the will of my Father that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing but raise it all up on the last day. John 6, 39. God finishes what he starts. And as another brother pointed out this morning, God is the one who does it all. Romans eight twenty nine to 30, whom he justified, he glorified. Now, Paul speaks here of glorification as already done, but earlier he talked about our glorification as that to which we look, uh, that for which we look eagerly, anxiously, as a future event. How do those two approaches tie together? I think what Paul's doing right here is he's using a little artistic license and he's using what we might call the prophetic perfect. He's speaking of our glorification, which is yet future, as being so certain that it might as well already have occurred. Now, that's not an unusual tactic among writers in Scripture, especially Old Testament folks, and Paul is very, very familiar with the Old Testament. Prophecy is often presented as having already occurred. Check out Isaiah 53. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, but we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. It's all talking about the substitutionary atonement of Christ, but it's 700 years before it happened, and it's talking in the past tense. So God does this a lot in Scripture. I believe our glorification day will be our resurrection day. I believe on that day we will fully and finally enter into our inheritance and into our redemption as the children of God and as fellow heirs with Christ. And that will be an amazing day indeed. We don't even know how to begin to comprehend what that's going to be like. From God's perspective, everything that he said he is at work to do in us was decreed and set into motion from before the beginning of time. Revelation 13, verse 8, and Revelation 17, verse 8, both talk about those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. And then it says, in essence, those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life got there before the foundation of the world. The glory that is to be revealed to us, the coming glory that even now renders the sufferings of this present time inconsequential by comparison, that marvelous glory that belongs to us because it belongs to Christ is an outcome that is as certain as certain can be. And everything that God is at work to do in us even now to prepare us for that glory is just as certain. God has given us cause for an unshakable confidence, a confidence that's not threatened in any way by the tribulations that we face on this earth. I want to step back for a moment to 
verse 29 again. Because whatever we do with the theology of this passage, the powerful point, the encouragement in this passage to us as God's redeemed people is that God gives us a strong confidence that He is at work in our lives to prepare us for glory. He is at work to conform us to the image of Christ. I find it very significant that in this chain of events, calling, justification, and glorification, especially these last three, God doesn't mention, uh, Paul doesn't mention sanctification. Now, there have been m- many and varied attempts to explain that omission. <laughs> I believe Paul is simply focusing on the certainty that God will accomplish his full work in redeeming us. Whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The heart of God's promise is that we who belong to Christ will be conformed to Christ and that God will finish what he started. So Paul looks at the glorification and assumes the justification. He's been talking plenty about, excuse me, the sanctification. He's been talking about our sanctification for quite a while. The ongoing process by which God works to impart to us his holiness in practice right here and right now. But his focus here is on the end result of that process, the completion of that process, which is our glorification. All right, when Paul says in verse 30, whom he justified, these he also glorified, I think he's collapsing the process that begins with our justification and ends in our glorification, the same way the Old Testament prophets often collapsed lengthy sequences of events to one concise view. And he's doing so to keep our attention on the certainty of the outcome. We who have been clothed in his righteousness will share his holiness. That's good news. The reason we know that that's going to be true is because God does it all, every step. The fulfillment of his promises does not depend on us. It never did. A brother this morning mentioned the mentioned Abraham, Jonathan did. Uh, And he talked about that sequence of events in Abraham's life. God made these amazing promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, the land, the seed, the blessing. And then Abraham seemed to do everything he could to put that covenant at risk. He took it on to himself and he made just a bunch of really, really messy mistakes. And yet God persisted in being faithful to all that he had promised. And eventually, eventually, through God's persistence in faithfulness to his promises, Abraham finally became faithful to God. And his faith became a model for all generations of God's people because he came to understand that God is so perfectly faithful to his covenant promises that even though God had commanded him to take the life of the covenant son... He was sure, he was convinced that God would raise that son from the dead in order to keep his promise. That's a guy who gets it. That is the confidence to which you and I are called. That is the confidence with which we face this life without even looking at this world because our eyes are fixed on Christ alone. God knows what he's doing with you. 
He knows exactly what he's doing with you. And what he's doing, beloved, is perfect. The sufferings we face right here are not a threat to us. They are a promise. The promise that we are being transformed and conformed to the likeness of our Savior and Master. And that marvelous transformation will one day be complete only because of God's faithfulness. Loving Father, we thank you for the confidence that you give us in your Son. We thank you that, uh, that all that you have set before us regarding your plan uh, is going to happen because you are the God who keeps his promises. And we thank you, Lord, that now, even now, in the midst of the, of the difficulties of this life, when we come to you in prayer, you render our prayers perfect by the work of your Spirit who is in this. You know our hearts perfectly. You know our needs better than we will ever know them this side of heaven. And you give only good gifts to your children. We thank you, Father, that that which defines good for us is that which glorifies and honors you. May that be what we're about every day of our lives. Teach us what that means, Father, that we may submit to it, that our lives may be all about the exaltation of your name. We ask this in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen.